Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. The 2015 Tour de Force A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara has provoked intense conversation amongst readers and critics alike, winning the Kirkus Prize and being shortlisted for both the Booker Prize and the National Book Award. The 720-page novel charts four classmates making their way in New York and is about, according to The Guardian, the limits of friendship, the depths of pain and shame that a human can endure, and the unending legacy of abuse. Hanya discusses her remarkable second novel and other matters with Anne Kennedy. We hope you enjoy this session. Hello everyone. Um, Kia ora koutou. Uh, welcome to uh, the session of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Life Lessons. Um, I'm Anne Kennedy and it's my very great pleasure this afternoon to be in conversation with Hanya Yanagihara, uh, who is of course the author of the phenomenal A Little Life, the not-so-little book that has wowed and astounded and confounded and um, moved uh, readers, critics, uh, reviewers all around the world. Um, It's been a phenomenal book. It's um, been one of the most talked-about books of of the year, Um, a huge bestseller. and has, uh, along with a swathe of accolades, won the Kirkus Prize, um, w- was shortlisted for the 2015 Man Booker Prize and the um, National Book Award. So please uh, join me in welcoming Hanya Yanagihara to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. So in a, in a moment, I'll um, briefly introduce Hanya. Um, and then we'll talk about the book and about her work and about writing. And at the end, uh, near the end, there'll be a chance for you to ask Hanya some questions. And then at the end of the session, Hanya will be signing books um, in the foyer and you'll be, be able to buy the book and talk to her again. Um, uh, before we go any further, I'd like to thank the sponsors, um, the Platinum patrons Adrian Burr and Peter Tatham for Hanya's visit to New Zealand. Thank you very much for your generosity. Um, And can you please take a moment now to turn off, uh, put your cell phones on silent. Um, Okay, really brief bio, because Hanya doesn't need an introduction. But um, I'm going to say, you you are from Hawaii, LA, and sort of all around uh, continental US. Right. And now you live in New York. You, uh, this is your second novel. Um, you also work as a magazine editor. And until last Monday. Oh, so until last Monday. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> She's unemployed it's now. It's a middle-aged gap year, but I'm going to have to go back and get another job in 2017. Oh. So, okay. You yeah. didn't retire. I didn't retire, sadly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and amazingly, A Little Life was written in the off hours, sort of in the evenings and weekends, so we'll come back to that. Um, so I'll just introduce the book a little, even though it's very, uh, very well known, this book, and um, a lot of people will know the plot, but I just thought it would be useful to sort of just sort of put it on the table before we start discussing it. So it follows the growing up um, from young adulthood to middle age of four men who've met at college and um, sort of established themselves in New York. Um, and, it, and as the novel goes on, it focuses more specifically on Jude, who is a successful um, litigation lawyer, 
and has, um, had suffered a terribly abusive childhood. Um, and so the trajectory of the novel concerns um, his friends uh, trying to keep him from the brink of despair because he's left with such psychological damage from his terrible childhood, and, and to really find out what happened to Jude. And, and so that's the, the journey for the reader, too, to find out exactly what happened. Um, so it's, it's had a phenomenal response, this book. It's a phenomenal book. Um, and I'm going to just read a couple of, um, of uh, responses from, from critics because I think they, um, they give some impression of just the, the huge impact this book has had in the world, really. It's, it's, um, it's quite rare for a book to have such, uh, uh, to be so traveled and so talked about and to have such impact in communities. A masterwork, if anything, that word is simply too little for it. That's from the San Francisco Chronicle. An epic study of trauma and friendship written with such intelligence and depth of perception that it will be one of the benchmarks against which all other novels that broach those subjects will be measured. That's the Wall Street Journal. And our own Kieran Das reviewing A Little Life on um, Radio New Zealand. I was shell-shocked. Everything else was like white noise, and uh, such is the power of well-crafted fiction. And I think that's why we're all here today. Um, so, Hanya, I'd like to start by asking you about the notion of friendship in this, this novel, because it seems that that's where it springs from. It's, it's, this novel is peopled by friends. Mm -hmm. They're not, they don't live in... Uh, nuclear families, they don't have children, they're urban. Um, so is the, and, and also their, their friendships are enduring. It's, it's not a coming-of-age novel that's all finished when they're 25. Right. The friendships span decades. And so I'm wondering if um, this idea of new family constructs is important in the telling of the story. I mean, I do think that, you know, this book is a fantasy in many ways, and this is one of the points that we can talk about later on. But one of the things I wanted to discuss, I wanted to pay homage to the way my friends and I live. You know, none of us are married, none of us have, um, none of us have children. And I thought of some friends I knew, friend groups in particular, who knew from very early on, from the time they were teenagers, that friendship was as important a relationship as, as marriage or parenthood, and worked really hard trying to keep that relationship alive and together. You know, when we think about what friendship has come to mean in this, in, in this um, you know, I mean, I, I used to be a magazine editor, and it's like how we talk about content, you know, which also used to be known as writing. So, you know, it's both <laughs> simultaneously more devalued and more in demand than ever before. And same with the word friendship. It's something that is has proliferated through our culture, has become a verb, has become a noun, has become an adjective, has taken, you know, gone beyond, above and beyond its, um, its, 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 um, its definition of, of what it once was and become co-opted in all sorts of different ways. And yet what the, we tend to be rather um, strict about how we continue to define what that role is. And we tend to be rather dismissive as a culture um, about, about what, but what role that way plays in our life, the primacy of that role. And yet, when we think about that, you know, this idea of friendship is sort of being second fiddle to, say, a marriage is a relatively recent invention. You know, marriage was something that was made not 
for love, but to unite cultures or to unite families or to unite dynasties. It was a practical consideration. Or you marry because you had to, to keep yourself from being alone or to keep yourself from being a freak. And so a friendship is the first time that you actually get to announce to the world and to yourself, you know, this is who I've chosen. This is my person. Um, and, and, and there's nothing that's keeping us together, no law. We're not even having sex. We're not um, doing any of the fun stuff. But it is, in an elemental way, what two humans are to each other. And so, because I live this kind of, I suppose, other adulthood in New York, which, again, doesn't come up that much in popular culture except as a punchline, um, I, I thought it was only right that it got, it was treated seriously that an adulthood that doesn't that isn't a recognizable adulthood um, in, insofar as being a conventional adulthood is still an adulthood all the same. You know, it's, it always, um, and I'm guilty of this as well, but I always find it fascinating how um, we talk about, say, the Times, the New York Times recently had a piece about a bunch of men who were in their 30s and living together as roommates. And it was sort of making fun of them, but also realizing that this is a demographic trend. But it does say something about how uncomfortable we are um, uh, about um, adults who don't um, hew to some sort of traditional model of adulthood. So that was part of it, certainly. Okay. Yeah. And therefore, uncomfortable, good territory for writing fiction. Right, exactly. But, uh, and then relating that, that idea of friendship to the content <laughs> of this uh, novel, it seems that perhaps the spectacular failure of the nuclear family and that era mm -hmm. has actually been quite short-lived. Um, it, that, that, in a way, is a breeding ground for abuse. And, uh, and it seems to me that in this novel, the, the very notion of having friends uh, peopling the novel um, brings an aspect of transparency, that they, because they're not embedded in this secret, toxic family, they're going to keep going and find out what happened to Jude, and that's exactly what happens, and that happens to us. That's really interesting. I never thought about it that way, but you're right. I mean, when you have... Um, a unit, let's say the nuclear family or the church or the army, that is sort of fetishized by the culture, then the institution, you know, by definition becomes very insular and very protective um, against criticism and against mm -hmm. others finding out. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a great sense of hiding whenever you have any sort of institution of whatever size that is so valued by the culture. And um, again, and friendship is is, I think, threatening to people because it is so unknowable and it is so ungovernable. And it does um, ask that, and because there are no rules for it necessarily and people define it in their own way all the time, um, it, it, it allows a great sort of expansiveness and that expansiveness is terrifying for people, mm -hmm. which doesn't answer your question. Well, no, no, it does. Um, and I think these friends, uh, these friends have a complex life. There are all sorts of shades at, at one point some of them sort of break up and, and some of them are cemented like family. So, um, but, but the beginning of it is a sharing. So I think that um, it, this would be a very different novel if it was set in a, in a family because there wouldn't be this, this search for, for knowing of, of each other. So, that, so, so to me, it seems that the content suits the characters very well. Although you're, you're right, but I think maybe it would be interesting to have a family or a family novel in which the members do really treat each other as strangers and as, as mysteries to be unlocked. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book was create, in a very broad stroke way, 
the arc of how we experience friendship. You know, when you're in your 20s and you're relatively privileged, as all of these characters are, they at least have a great deal of sort of cultural wealth, you sort of assume, and you're ambitious and you're smart and you're well-connected, you assume that life will sort of go on the way it's, it's the way your early adulthood indicates it will. And that is a necessary, almost evolutionary um, hubris that I think a lot of young people have, especially people who move to the city and they're clueless and they think they're going to make it after all. And that's what these characters have. And life seems very easy for them. Or, or the difficulties seem somehow um, ones about money or about things or about experience, things that can be accrued and overcome. And if you stay in a friendship long enough and if you stay in adulthood long enough, you realize that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. The most difficult things to, um, to answer are to realize that your friends may not be the people you think they are and, and, and that they are people in, you know, un, unto themselves and that you will not be able to solve <clears throat> many issues, many, many problems. Um, when you're young and when we're young, we think of life as, I think, as something that can be fixed. Yeah. And um, yeah. as you get older, you realize that's less and less so, or, or yeah. you, you better, at least. And in the end, that's the so. trajectory of the novel, is that yes. it doesn't, you can't really solve right. anything. Yes. But um, let's, let's leap into talking about the emotional impact of this novel, because I think that's one of the re most remarkable aspects of it, and the thing that has, um, has galvanized people and pulled them in all sorts of ways. The, the emotional effect that the... Um, depictions of abuse have had on readers. Um, uh, the, the LA Times reviewer was left sobbing, like admitted that in a review that she was left sobbing, and I, that seems to have been a really common experience. And I, I read this in my book group and was told beforehand that I should arrange therapy for afterwards. <laughs> um, so d did you set out to engender this kind of response from the reader? No, and you know, uh, so I have one reader who reads everything of mine, and so I, I was, as I wrote, I was giving sections of it to him, and he didn't cry at all. And then I showed it to my agent, she didn't cry at all. And then I gave it to my editor, and he didn't cry at all either. So it was a shock when people they actually hardened started. people. I, apparently, I mean, they're just monsters, I guess. Um, my, my UK editor did cry, but he's kind of, you know, weak. So I, I wasn't that surprised. You know, he kind of cries about everything. Um, <laughs> but not very British of him, but he, um, so he cried. But again, that wasn't a big surprise. So, um, so it, but it was a big surprise to have people, obviously I wanted people to emotionally engage with it. I wanted them to feel walloped. You know, I wanted them, this is not a book that I think you can go into and not surrender to, to some extent. You know, it asks for a complete engagement and it asks for a certain amount of suspension of belief. And I hope with it, what re it rewards you with is the intimacy of a well-realized and singular world. I mean, that's what I want as a reader, and that's what I tried to give the reader in this book. But it certainly does. When I was writing it, well, thank you. I kind of, um, you know, I certainly wasn't thinking. I wasn't typing and thinking, my God, they have all these people are going to be sitting here sobbing. You just can't yeah, think that way. Right. I don't think. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's so. If everyone knew how to write a book that if I knew how to write a book that would be received, you know, in one way or another, there would be no guesswork to publishing because everyone would be just turning out bestsellers. So, so you never really know how something's going to connect with readers. And I think of this as a very specific book in a lot of ways. I think of it as a very American book. And um, it has been 
surprising um, and, um, and, and terrifically honoring because of that surprise, that it has found readers that, um, that I would never have imagined it would have. Yeah. I think that um, the intensity um, that it engenders in the reader um, it, uh, is the thing that uh, is the most particular. Like it's, a, it's a very original book. I've never read a book like this before, and many people say that, and the reviews say that. It's, it's, it's really singular, and it seems to be that um, emotional connection that is its, its main singularity. Mm. So I'd, I'd like to quote you here. This is you in The Guardian, if you don't mind. Um, what a reader can always tell is when you're holding back from fear of offending them. I wanted there to be something too much about the violence in the book, but I also wanted there to be an exaggeration of everything, an exaggeration of love, of empathy, of pity, of horror. I wanted everything turned up a little too high. So I'm wondering if the subject matter required that. Not so much. You know, I've talked before about how my template for this book was really a fairy tale, and it, this book borrows many of its um, sort of tropes and moods from, and language even, and conventions from a fairy tale. You know, there's a motherless uh, child who's abandoned. There's a complete lack of parents. There's no mention of time. There's um, a place that's suggested by its architecture rather than really described. Um, there's, um, there's, you know, a series that it's both in time and out of time, and that the ending, when it comes, when happiness does come, it's a rather tinny kind of happiness. And so I borrowed all of that, and I married it to, you know, a contemporary naturalistic novel. So how the characters talk, how they were educated, how they see the world and their place in it, their, self, their sense of entitlement, what they want from the world, are all things that we see in a contemporary naturalistic book. And when you put those two together, they're not sort of likely um, uh, spouses. What you get, I think, is something that feels a little you know, chimeric, like something that isn't quite one thing and isn't quite another, and I hope that the reader feels a little off-center the entire time. You know, <clears throat> if, you, if you're spending you know, so much time thinking about, well, what is this, what is this, then the book has failed, because it should feel immersive, it should feel like a bewitchment. Mm -hmm. And that's really wanted, how I wanted it to feel, like something that you knew wasn't quite a universe you were familiar with, and yet wasn't, wasn't quite not that, that universe. And within this sort of, I suppose it's not magical realism, but perhaps it's realistic magic, you know? There's a lot that you can do that you wouldn't do in, in, in a straight contemporary naturalistic right. book. I mean, I remember telling my editor that I thought that if some things weren't quite believable, they should always feel true. And I, I, didn't, I still don't quite know how to articulate that beyond that, but I wanted a book that really, um, th that really felt as if it were uh, not trying to second guess what you, the reader, wanted or what was going to be trendy or what was going to, be, um, what was going to make it accessible, but was um, honest all the way through. Yeah, right. You know, uh, I came to... Um be applying the word gothic to this book, mm. but not completely. So it's interesting to hear you um, talk about these strands that have gone into it, the, f the fairy tale and the, um, uh, the, the all the various strands. And um, so I thought of it as a gothic sort of cross-genre because it, it has some elements of gothic in that um, it's heightened and, and terrible and um, uh, ahistorical in a mm. sense in that 
for instance, Twin Towers happens during this book, but we don't, it's not noticed because the book is kind of looking inward right. at the, in, in a way, isolated lives of the characters. Right. Um, and so, um, but it doesn't, at, at the same time, it doesn't, uh, uh, it, it has redemption, whereas right. u- usually in Gothic fiction, uh, there's no redemption. It's all terrible. So, so it seems to me that you, you've really effectively kind of um, juxtaposed these, these uh, veins. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, um, you know, I was just reading um, Paul Theroux's recent book called Deep South, and he has, it's, it's wonderful. It's his travelogue through the American South, and he has one interlude about the, the fantastications of Southern fiction, as he calls them, in particular about the grotesqueries of Southern Gothic fiction, you know, how there's always a dwarf and there's always, you know, some person with a hair lip and there's always some person who's getting, you know, their legs stolen from a, you know, a barn, you know, typical stuff. And, um, but it did, it did remind me that, you know, and those stories too do often borrow from, from the tradition of, of, of fairy tales, from folklore, from Bible stories, the sort of sense of everything being um, a sort of relishing in, in, in the grotesqueries of life. Now, I hope that this book doesn't do that. Um, it, it certainly isn't my intention to have Jude or anyone else be a figure of who is paraded, you know, who is um, someone on display. But I did want the reader to be made uncomfortable, not for just the sake of being made uncomfortable, but because very violent lives are difficult to look at often. But when we encounter them in art, it, it behooves us to look at them. It is often, you know, we live in an age in which violence is both ever closer and more remote at the same time. We can go onto YouTube and we can see someone get beheaded. Um, but it's, it's very unlikely that many of us, at least in the United States, has ever seen someone die and go through the, the rituals of being washed and bathed and, and, and cared for um, in death. So. It was it was a desire to um, I'll just say that I, I think that literature, art in general, is currently one of the only places where we can see violent lives um, if we're not living one or exposed to one ourselves, and very very sad lives. And when we do encounter it in fiction, um, it, it's something that we should look at square in the face. And it is an area that I think a writer should 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 cover. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Cause, uh, one, I was going to ask you, um, mm. you know, why not do some research into um, this kind of violence and just publish it as a kind of treatise, or you know, uh, you know, why is it fiction? Um, and so you've answered that. But but perhaps it's um, in, in addition, it's the transformative sort of um, power that it, that then you can kind of you can take it somewhere that um, where we can um, make it make it human. Well, I mean, I do think, you know, that a book that has a great deal of violence but doesn't invite empathy is just a sadistic book, you know. But a book that has violence because to remind us that lives are violent is, is a book about, about, ultimately not about violence, but about humans and about, and about life itself. Um, and, you know, I never meant, when I was in, in London, people asked, is this a book about, um, about abuse? And... To me, it was never a book about abuse. It was a book about trauma, and it was a, it was a book about how one um, uh, makes an adulthood living not with the past in the past, but the past right beside you, sort of this you know beast that's tied to your back. And is that possible? 
And also, at what point do we give our friends and our, our loved ones, once we understand that love is not going to be able to save anyone, um, what is our responsibility as, as one human who loves another? Um, but, uh, but I, I can... And it, a, abuse is part of a terrible life, but I think abuse is a part of many people's lives. Yeah. So, so love is not going to save anyone, but, but love is still very much at the center of the book. One of the um, most wonderful uh, uh, arcs in it for me was the love affair between uh, Jude and Willem, which is slow burning, that the, these characters have known each other since they were young, and it, it, ta it takes a long time to sort of come to anything. Uh, and of course, Willem is up against Jude's um, natural resistance to getting close to any human being in any way. So it's very tender and, and beautiful and very satisfying and, and detailed. I, think, I mean, overall, that's one of your, the great strengths of this novel, that the details are what make us well, get immersed in it, um, but particularly in this arc. And so that, that arc is about love, right? <laughs> no, no, it is. And, I mean, it is. And I, I think that I hope if the book says, and I believe that even if love isn't going to save anyone, the beautiful thing about love is you keep doing it anyway. You know, that it is one of the very few things in life that, um, that we do knowing it won't re result in, um, well, that it won't end in a result. And especially in a culture that is so results-oriented, where this idea that you do this, you do this, you do this, and you'll end up here, or you'll end up with this. I mean, with love, it doesn't quite work that way. You do it because... Um, it's a practice of, of your own humanity to do it, not because you think there's going to be a result from it. Let's go back to uh, looking at it as, a, as an American novel. Um, so I, I, I suppose, you know, because you're American, you, you have a different, you're coming at this from a different angle, but um, for, for me and probably us um, as mostly New Zealanders, it, it seems very American and um, I'm, I, see two um, quite American uh, um, uh, uh, sort of uh, well, arms of American consciousness. And one is the American dream, success, mm. so all these characters are quite successful in their own right. And the other is a sort of uh, facelessness that comes from a huge country yeah. where people can fall through the cracks. And so it seems that in this novel, these two... The, these two notions of the American dream and success and isolation and lostness come head on. Yes, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I was always, I've always been interested in the iconography of America, which I, I tried to put in in certain ways here. I mean, this just, you know, when I was growing up, my parents were constantly driving us back and forth across country because we were moving or because they thought it would be fun and it wasn't, but, you know, so, so this idea of these motel rooms, this expansiveness, the vastness of America, and one of the things that I always thought about while writing Jude in particular and the particularities of his life is that there's so many places in America to hide. There's just simply so much room, and all of the lives that we hear about are only the lives we know, and then there are many, there are hundreds or thousands of others we'll never have access to, that we'll never see. And every time that, it, you know, the newspaper reports that someone, some family's been found living off the grid here, or there's been a small community of, of people who, you know, 
worship pickles there or whatever. It, we never cease to be amazed, and yet, and yet the country is so large, it can accommodate so many, um, and, and there's so many places to evade um, uh, recognition. And, and that was one of the, the things that I thought about quite a bit when writing Jude. And the other thing, I mean, of course you're right, there's, there is, these are characters who, like many people in New York, fetishize success and, and what success means. I was recently talking to a friend of mine who is American and living in Germany, and she was talking about her kids, and um, you know, she said, oh, they're, they're sort of smart, but if they don't go to a good school, then that's okay. But Americans would never think like that, Americans of her class and her, and her upbringing. And every single parenting book that's written in America is about accomplishment. It's about either whether it's about making your child be rich or making your child be a sports star or making your child go to an Ivy League school. It is always about, and, and that unites Americans again, you may have a different idea of what accomplishment is, but your, your goal is to, is to raise someone who will accomplish something within the capital A. And so that makes its way into the book too. And I think the third way in which to me it feels very American is this idea of happiness, which, um, which I think Western culture is collectively um, preoccupied with. But, but Americans, um, y- you know, it's certainly in popular culture, believe and are told to believe that if you want it badly enough, um, if you try for it hard enough, um, then you'll get it, even though the definition of what it is is slippery and elusive. And one of the things this book asks is, is it asks you to consider whether that is um, a cruel way to to think about happiness in this, especially other people's lives um, in relation to happiness. So if you don't try hard enough and you are unhappy, it by this construction, it's your fault. You failed somehow. And um, all of the ways that we talk about, about, I mean, we make fun of Trump collectively for talking about being a loser and, or a winner, but that is how we in America discuss many, many things, but be it death or happiness or, or wealth um, or, or sickness. And um, it's, it's, it's a very um, restrictive way to um, think of, of, of your fellow man, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems that the uh, you talked earlier about the fairy tale aspect of this, the, the fairy tale which is so unreal, you know, acknowledged to be unreal, and the American dream which is possibly real are, are kind of wrapped up in that, and and that's, I think that's really successfully yeah. comes across in the book. Um, uh, and, uh, I'm just just uh, picking up on your um, talking about um, these. Uh, spaces like motel rooms and and you know, like supermarkets and sort of non-spaces that actually um, have been kind of disseminated all around the world, and we have those here. And yeah. um, that it was notable that um, some of the most terrible scenes in the novel, and um, that was with the bro- the Catholic brother sort of pimping out um, Jude when he's young, take place in motel rooms, which are essentially faceless and kind of a, like an, a blank canvas. Right. Can you talk about I mean, that? it is probably the ultimate, along with the road, which is its companion, the ultimate iconography of America is, is a transient space, someplace that many lives are lived and no one is known. And, um, and, and therefore, there are scenes of, I think, you know, sort of terrible horrors and also very deep sadness. Um, 
One of the things that, besides not having a time named in this book, I also try to sort of destabilize the reader and, and, and trap them within a very small universe of these characters by really, most of the action of this book is set indoors. So it's in apartments, it's in office buildings, it's in churches, it's in motel rooms, it's in hospitals, but you very rarely get out into the world with them. Um, and sometimes you do. But the book, you know, I wanted to make the book, you know, feel funnel-like in that sense, so that, you know, Jude's world gets smaller and smaller and smaller until finally he's just, he's just in this apartment rattling around in it. But all of the other places he used to go, um, he doesn't, and finally he's just in, in the bathroom alone. Um, so this idea of, and again, this is a very American instinct, you know, within, within a large country, to find some place that's some place of your own until it becomes a place that you never leave. Um, was also something I tried to toy around with in the book. Uh, let's talk about the form of the book. I mean, it's a, uh, it's massive, <laughs> and it's a very different experience reading a, this long form to, uh, from reading a shorter novel. And in in a sense, this uh, the length of it is the form, and it's not unusual these days. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering if uh, well, two things: whether you uh, you, you embrace the form of, of the long novel, um, or was it something that uh, that just happened? Did you, um, as someone uh, someone accused Eleanor Catton of, she forgot to stop. Was that you? No, I mean I, I I don't think that long novels are any better than short novels, and, and, and you know in fact. Well, not better, but just well, but different. I, I would you know? I would rather yeah. write a short novel. I mean, it's there. It's, it takes it's much much harder to have you know, a great economy of prose, and a shorter novel can do just as much as this one, as a long novel can. But I knew from the start it was going to be long. I mean, I, I, I as you mentioned, I structured it um, intentionally, as almost like a symphony, and I wanted, you know, so there's seven parts, and then there's three parts, and there's typically three parts within each part. And um, within each of those sections, there's no breaks. Mm -hmm. So there's very few line. There's no line breaks in each section. So once you enter it, you're, you're trapped in it. So it was a way of asking for the reader to remain underwater, as it were, for a long time, rather than stopping, because there are no natural stopping points in this book. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I knew from the beginning it would be very long, um, and I wanted to feel leisurely. You know, I wanted the characters' lives to feel lived in to the reader. And again, there are other ways to do that. You can do that in a very short novel. There's a wonderful novel, it's a novella actually by Mona Simpson called Off Keck Road, which is I think barely 100, 120 pages or so. And it's about the, a life of, of a woman who uh, lives in a small town in Wisconsin and it's very beautiful and, and it's an entire life um, and um, in this small town and it is, and you really believe you have been with this woman the entire time and it's, it's very, very nicely done. But, but this wasn't this book. I, I knew yeah. that I wanted the reader to really spend time with these people and to get to know them and to um, and then I hope that they're getting to know them as in any long friendship or any long relationship that the reward would be the sense that they got to singularly know them that their relationship with them um, was special and somehow different than someone else's but let's talk about your um, the way you wrote it um, for a start, um, you didn't suffer sophomore slump, <laughs> which is uh, the second novel syndrome. Um, you, you, it seems like you just went for it, and you, you were working full-time, and you would 
come home and work in the evenings and weekends for 18 months and and um, I read that you wouldn't recommend this to anyone and you don't want to do it again. But t- tell us about that process. Well, so someone, I read somewhere that someone's agent had told him, another writer, to write his second book in between his first book getting accepted and it being published. Because in, it's great advice. I mean, it's, you don't know how you're going to be received. You don't really know anything at all, and you're just kind of sitting there waiting and freaking out. So it's actually a great time to use. And um, in, in this case, I had the book sort of rattling around for about five years, I would guess, before I started. And I just, um, you know, I was, so I started working on this, I, I guess, shortly after my first book got turned in. And then I really started working on this book in earnest. And then, as you said, it was 18 months. And just a lot of stars aligned. You know, I had a job that um, I only worked four days a week. And as anyone who works four days a week knows, that fifth day is like two days. It's a real gift. And um, I was very comfortable in my job. You know, I knew how to cut the right corners that I needed to. And I knew what I could get away with it. And um, This is magazine. When I was at Connie and Ask Traveler. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just, um, and I really loved being in the life of this book. I knew exactly where I was going with it. I... Um, it was just uh, one of those strange bits of alchemy that, that don't happen that often. And I wish I could say I'm going to do it again, but I don't think I will. It was, it was, and, it, and for anyone out there who is a writer, it felt really urgent to me. It felt like um, a book that I, in which I had something to say, and I felt I was the only one that could, could, who could say it. And that is, I think, beyond anything else what you need to write a novel. It, it really does have to, or any sort of art, it really does have to feel that if you can't say this, it can't be said. Um, and it's, it's that kind of mix of sort of cluelessness and arrogance that really powers any sort of creative work, and it did with this one for me. Yeah. And, um, that reminds me of um, Zadie Smith's um, That Crafty Feeling, where she talks about... Um, uh, starting her novel and then just being in the novel it's what it is and just yeah. going with it and she couldn't understand writers who decide that oh no this character should be a man and this one should be 60 instead of right. 40 and so it, it wasn't you just knew and you went for it I, I think I think some you know it, there is some throat clearing I think before the writing begins but you're, but she's right once you settle into what it should be you shouldn't be making those sorts of decisions anymore mm. Do, um, do you have an, did you have an imagined reader? I mean, the, this, I guess, harks back to the idea of the, sort of, uh, the feelings that it engendered in readers. But was, do you no, I mean, I wrote it for me, and I wrote it for my best friend. And he was, he's my first reader, and so much of what this book has to say about friendship and love is born out of conversations that we had and, um, and, and the way he taught me how to be a friend. So it, it was a very personal book for me. And I suppose now in retrospect, I can say I think fiction works best when it is very personal, mm-hmm. when you aren't trying to write to someone imaginary, when you're, when you're writing to someone very specific. Um, and, and the specificity of the emotions and, and, and the messages and the philosophies of the book are, are really what um, I hope would make it stand apart. Mm-hmm. Was it a hard book to write emotionally for you? Yes and no. I mean, it was, it, it was, I suppose the difficulties of the emotion were overridden by the sheer joy of writing it. 
Because when you know characters this well, and when you know the book so well and the life of the book so well, it's really a joy to do it, even though it's difficult and even though it's draining. The hard part has been the book being over, and these characters, you know, you want this to happen, that these characters are so present that they occupy your waking life and your sleeping life and, and, and all the sort of liminal moments in between. But, you know, you, you think, okay, well, I'm done with this book and now I'm going to move on. And it really doesn't work like that. Um, they really hang around. Um, Especially for when a long you're time. going around the world talking about them. It's, it's true. So they're very vivid to me still. Um, and, you know, the book certainly awakened complicated things for me that, that, that I, d I wasn't even really conscious I was, I was thinking about. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering whether this book. Um, uh, followed on from your first book, which um, the People in the Trees, which was published in 2013, and was yeah. also a very successful book, wi widely acclaimed. Um, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about it. Um, but, um, but my question about it really is uh, that it is from the point of view of an abuser, and this is from the point of view of the victim. And right. I'm wondering if the, you know one led to the other. Well, so the book is about, based on the life of a, a real-life doctor named Dr. Carlton Gajusek, who was a pediatrician and immunologist who, in the 50s, discovered um, a, a neurodegenerative disease among a tribe in Papua New Guinea, and it was called kuru, which meant the shaking. And so the, the victims would shake and shake and shake, and then they would die, and they would deteriorate pretty rapidly. And what Carlton Gajusek did was he discovered that this was part of a group of a family called slow-acting prions, which is you know part of scrapies, a member of this group of viruses and mad cow disease and Creutzfeldt-Jakob and so on and so forth. And he um, won the Nobel for it um, in the 70s. But what he really became known for was he started adopting the children of these 4A tribes people. And so he had a collection of about 50 of them. And that's really what I think he thought of them as a collection. And um, he was a great scientist. Um, and you couldn't be in you know, virology or immunology or pedi pediatrics or um, medical bioethics or medical anthropology and not know who he was. He was really, really brilliant. And then in 1999, it was reported that the FBI had been conducting a sting. And he um, had been accused by several of his sons of raping them. He pled guilty. He went to federal prison in America for 18 months. And when he got out, he was offered many jobs um, in Europe. And he went to um, Norway, I believe, and lived out the rest of his years there. And it was, um, he was, you know, I, when I was younger, my father was also a, a physician at, um, at NIH, the National Institutes of Health, where Carleton had a lab. And he was really just, I mean, he was sort of like, Beyonce in our household, you know, I mean, he was like this, like a huge rock star, and you, you, he was kind of this godlike figure. And one of the things I, w I wondered about is, you know, can you be um, a great man um, and a great mind, and what happens when the great man part of it ends? You know, what can we square um, this idea of someone who did such, I'm not going to say good, but such. Um, fascinating things for science and therefore humanity with someone who also inflicted great pain and abused his power terribly um, against the people who um, needed his kindness and protection the most. So the book is told from this imagined Gajusek's perspective. And while this book isn't a direct answer to it, 
you know, in, in the first book, Gajasek makes a lot of justifications for his behavior. And the reason that I think child abuse is so corrosive is because it is such an abuse of power. It's, it's not for reasons of morality, it's for reasons of, um, it, it's, it's, for, it's for that grotesque power imbalance that you, an adult, are um, inflicting upon the most powerless people of our society something that they are powerless to resist. And, and I wanted to, it's, it's a bit of a rejoinder, but not directly. Yes, right. Perhaps this book asks, and, and can that child ever be great? Yeah, I mean, I think people recover from trauma in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of times. Um, and, but I, I do think there are some people who, who aren't able to. Can you tell us about the influences that have shaped you as a writer, as the writer of these two books? So, like, uh, I read that you uh, used to draw as a child and you drew cadavers. <laughs> and I'm yeah. wondering if that kind of acute observation not, has led you to be a writer. Not really, but it did. I, I was lucky because I had parents who were very unsentimental about the body and how the body falls apart, and that's something that unites both of the books, this idea of the body um, both fighting against itself and also fighting to protect itself. Um, and, and they were very, they gave me a lot of exposure to how human forms and, and other living creatures fell apart. Um, and that was always interesting to me, and it was always a subject that was discussed openly and, and with candor and, and, and great detail. So. Um, so, so there is certainly that, and I suppose the other thing that my parents did, although I didn't really notice this till later, is that they had a lot of different kinds of people in their lives, and I don't just mean racially or, or by religion or, or um, ethnicity-wise. They had friends who never married. They had friends who were ascetics. They had friends who were little people. They had friends who, um, you know, lived in sort of confusing triangulations of, of relationships. They had friends who, um, who chose to opt out of conventional adulthood. They had friends who you know, were activists. They just had a lot of, uh, I was exposed to people who had chosen different paths of adulthood or, different, or who faced different sorts of perspectives, sometimes literally, um, in life. And that was, and they were, again, very matter of fact about it, but it was something that I hope informs both of these books, and particularly the second. Yeah, perhaps that informs your your choice to write about other that you you've written about men rather than women. You've right. written about um, the, the. It's interesting that the the foursome are kind of divided up into black and white, and that they they have different sexualities, and but they, but they're they're other from you, and they're sort of other from each other as well. Is that perhaps where that comes from? I mean, yes, it's a little bit of a romanticized vision of, of, I mean, friendships because we tend to gravitate towards people who resemble us, however we want to define that, whether it's by, by skin or by gender or by sexuality or so on. But, you know, uh, this particular, there is a way of being in a city like New York in particular where where you went to college and how much cultural capital you have overrides, at least within that bubble, a lot of different differences, and it is the case for these friends. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think a writer should write across difference, not to prove to herself that she can or to prove to anybody else. Um, and, of course, if the difference is the only thing that defines your character, 
you're in big trouble. You know, you've just created a different kind of cliche. Um, but it, it behooves a writer to try to imagine a life other than her own. But other than her own doesn't necessarily mean someone who's racially different. It can mean someone who grew up in a country where they grew up in the city. But, you know, insofar as fiction is supposed to be a chronicle of lives, you know, a writer, too, should be chronicling many different kinds of lives. Yeah. So no autobiographical novels at the moment? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, what do you read? I, you know, I'm very interested in that question because this, because this book is so singular, I've never read a book like this, I wonder what the author of this book reads. Well, I only read contemporary fiction, really. I'm not very well-read. Well I mean, I, I used to be much better read, and then I sort of stopped. But I really I love um, Ishiguro. He's probably my favorite living writer, um, just because he has a single theme in his books, memory. And with every single book, he remakes the book itself. And that's so hard to do. So that every book is, is borrows from different genres. Every book takes you to a different world. Yet the sentences are very his, and the ideas behind it are very his. Um, and I love Hilary Mantel because she switched genres in the she switched styles. Sorry, in the middle of her career. I mean, you know, you her early novels are very dark and very funny. If you guys haven't read them, you should read them. They're they're very they're these really sour uh, little confections. Like every day is Mother's Day, and um, and I um, I can't remember the the really vacant possessions. They're really great. And then with the giant O'Brien in the in the in the late 90s, she changed and became a terrifically interesting and unexpected uh, writer of historical fiction. Um, I love John Banville. I think he's, he writes so beautifully. No one writes as beautifully as he does. Um, I, was, I love Stephen Milhauser, who's an American short story writer, and um, a little bit and creates these worlds that are just sort of slightly off-center, but very beautifully detailed. I love Jonathan Coe. Um, who's a British, mostly known as a British satirist, but um, but I think that sort of is too brief a description. Um, like Vikram Chandra, Neil Mukherjee. Um, uh, I always start. This is where I start forgetting people. Um, I loved Anita Bruckner. I mean, I I read everything. I love David Levitt. He's, I haven't read him in a long time, but I love his work. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's. Um, and I love Ann Tyler. I think it's very hard to do what she does. Um, you know, you know from the first sentence that you're within an Ann Tyler book, um, and 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 it's it's very hard to write that kind of book that she writes. So, what's next for you? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess I, sh I should think of something to say, right? But I don't. I just don't know yet. Um, thank you so much. Thank it's been you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Please join me in thank thanking you. Hanya. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.